You're listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more information about the House and our events on our website. Good evening, everyone. My name is Åse Lappegolan, and I work with the artistic program here at the House of Literature. And it is my pleasure to welcome you to this evening with Ariel Livy. The notion of having it all, I would guess, is familiar to most women in the audience, at least. For it is especially women who are haunted with this unattainable ideal. We're supposed to have a great career, a partner, and when we reach a certain age, children. But for many of us, we're too busy doing and being everything to even consider children until the day that we suddenly do. But then biology comes in, as it does also in Levy's brilliant memoir. Um, Ariel Levy uh, is known to many as a great journalist in The New Yorker, writing about people who break with traditional notions of femininity, expectations of women, women who are, in her own phrase, too much, and she counts herself among them. In her 2005 book, Female Chauvinist Pigs, she takes a critical look at the highly sexualized culture born out of the sexual revolution and women's desire to share in men's power. In The Rules Do Not Apply, Når reglene ikke gjelder, in Norwegian by Rune Moon, it is her own life that is up for scrutiny and dissection. In a prose that is both raw and sharply funny and with images that stay with you, she tells the story centering on those few weeks when the foundation of her life crumbled, when she lost her child, her partner, her home, and the future she thought she had. The Guardian called Levy's writing blistering honesty. The New York Times called it funny as hell, that she renders overwhelming sorrow with precise brushstrokes. And among the many Norwegian readers who've been affected by Levy's memoir is literary critic in the Morgenbladet, Bernard Elfsen. Um, in an excellent piece about the book he wrote, and this is my translation, uh, the reminder is all the stronger coming from a writer who has all the experience imaginable with how we do gender, with the social and cultural sides of sexuality. Biology is real, and it subjects us to rules from which we can never really free ourselves. I'm so happy to welcome Ariel Levy to this stage and to have Bernard Ellipson join her in conversation. So please give them both a warm welcome. Hi, welcome. Thanks. And you have to talk into this microphone that you wanted so strongly. I actually don't have to. I'm so loud. <laughs> no, but I will. That was a beautiful intro. Where'd she go? That was a beautiful introduction. Thank you. And thanks for doing this, Bernard. Um, thank you. And congratulations on this uh, translation. This thanks. Um, I mean, I didn't translate. <laughs> <laughs> but you wrote the book. Yes. No reglene ikke gjelder. Uh, Speaking of which, can I just say one yeah. thing? Norwegians, I'm so sorry that you have to listen to this in English. I really am sorry that I don't speak Norwegian. <laughs> so thank you. <laughs> That's nice of you. But I still, we prefer the English, I think. You Real, don't, really? You, you don't have to try. No, you don't, you're kidding. You don't have to try. Okay. Yeah. That no. was a little Norwegian humor. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just bad humor. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, we're here to talk about this book. Um, okay, okay. Okay. Uh, it's a book that contains multitudes, I think. 
It's a book about the most painful of losses, the loss of a child, and the grief that follows from it. It's a book about writing, and how the work of writing differs from that of being alive. It's a book about a generation's feeling of control and freedom from constraints, and the uses of this freedom. And it's a book about gender and sex and bio biology. And it's a kind of confrontation, I think, between ideas and ideals on the one hand, and the contingency and uncertainty of life on the other. And in the opening pages of The Rules Do Not Apply, you describe, I think, a generation or a time mm. in history and a view of life and the world as it seemed. Back then, can I say back then? There's, yeah. it, I think this may be, yeah. may be a generation of the 90s where the Cold War has ended, 9-11 yeah. hasn't happened, yeah. um, and people are influenced by liberation. The economy is yeah. booming. booming. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and we were influenced by the liberation movements and popular cultures of the 60s and 70s, and people had a sense of security. I think you describe a situation where people expect to be in control of their lives, to be in control of their bodies and of the future, really. Uh, and I wanted to open with this because you've written so much and so well uh, about this cultural situation and because this is also, in a sense, a description of yourself that you give in the opening pages of the book. Uh, and it's this person that we meet there, who we meet there, uh, who will later have this sense of control and safety shattered. Um, so I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about uh, first about this sense of control that sure. characterized this generation and characterizes maybe, but yeah. Something I wonder, you know, I was only born the one time in 1974. <laughs> like I only was in my 20s <laughs> when I was in my 20s. But I wonder if it really is about my generation. Because when, when I talk to young women now, they, or uh, young men too, but let's talk about young women for a second specifically. I don't know that a lot has changed. Like, I don't, just, just because, so when I think about, okay, why did I have such a sense of control? It's a lot of the reasons you just said. And another reason I think is the advent of like smartphones and the internet. You know, when I was a kid, none of that existed. And I think going from like a analog life to this weird other world where you hold the world in your hand and everything's just away, I think that, contributed to this sense of who knows what's possible like what else is going to what's going to happen next but even when i talk to young women now who so they came of age with that all existed and there's a much different political climate i don't hear that it's that different so now i'm like i don't know if it was about my generation or if it's about youth yeah. a privileged youth obviously you don't have an illusion of control if you grow up hungry or somewhere that's war torn but you know, I only know what it was like to be a member of my generation, but it sure sounds to me like that's what it's like to be in your 20s. Yeah. But still, you write about uh, not having the experience of terrorism, for instance, as one example, and that maybe relates to the city <laughs> in yeah. which you live. Yeah. Um, and, but New York in the 90s, I, yeah. I beg your pardon, was it, had a particularly 
invulnerable feel. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons we were so shocked by September 11th. It just had, it was that sense of invulnerability and that kind of swagger, you know, that you saw represented in television and movies. It was like that. Um, there was, it was, there was a lot of swagger to that city. So to that, in that way, I do think my, the way I was, the way I thought of things was influenced somewhat by the place and time. Because yeah. New York isn't quite like that anymore. But you also write about um, the, um, how, for instance, feminism and other movements had created a sense of control. And we can, we can just uh, talk about the body <laughs> now. Well, well Because, I would say, yeah. in terms of movements, yeah. I would say not so much control, but a sense of possibility, right? Mm -hmm. That, that you know, am I talking about the same thing you are? Movements for social change, movements yeah, in the sure. 60s, yeah? yeah? So because of that, suddenly a lot of rules didn't apply. Suddenly you could have the first black president. You could have the advent of same-sex marriage. You know, a lot of fantastic progress was made. And I don't know if it was a sense of control, it was a sense of possibility. It was a sense of, you know, the reason it's called the rules to not apply is the, the upside of, of what came before me, what I benefited from, mm -hmm. was people of my parents' generation looking at their society and saying, if something isn't fair or doesn't make sense, you know, we're going to throw hierarchy out. If a rule shouldn't apply, it no longer does. But it takes root in in people, right? And, sure. And it has consequences for how we live our lives. Sure. So, um, and in that sense, I think it's a, a feeling of being in control, that I can do something about this situation. Right, and, right, um, right, right. And we can find the word in birth control, for instance. Right. I can control this, this part of my life. I can choose not to do this. Or I the can, other yeah. side of it, or, yeah. you know, for, uh, what would you call it? <laughs> Fertility know. intervention. Yeah. You know, birth control or... The other thing. <laughs> what do you what do you call it? What you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah, but I, I want to talk a little bit about this this uh, part of being in control because that's what uh, that's what this book tells us about falling apart. Mm -hmm. It's this sense of control. Mm -hmm. And where does this sense of control come from, and how does it feel? You know what I mean? I. Might. I mean, I, I, I think what you're talking about and what I'm talking about mm -hmm. is the kind of the double-edged sword of possibility, right? Yeah. That the good news is you can make all kinds of progress. You can have what I was talking about a minute ago, all sorts of movements for social justice actually get somewhere in really tangible ways. And the, the scary side, the other side, is it's possible then to take it to another step, especially in the culture we were talking about, especially if you grow up somewhere affluent, where there's no war, where you know, the economy is booming, it would be possible, and especially if you were in New York, to think, well, maybe none of the rules apply. You know, if, if, this, if all this good stuff can happen and suddenly you know, I don't need to have a brain anymore, I can just go like this anywhere in the world and it'll tell me where I am, What else might happen? What else do I not need to, to sacrifice or um, compromise on? Mm. Yeah, is that yeah. what you're talking? Yeah. yeah. Um, for how long does that work? You write about the feeling of 
always having time, that th this sense of control or this sense of possibility, it makes us um, not recognize that uh, time flies, that oh, we, we have bodies, we, have, we live in a culture, or no, we live lives that are, uh, are vulnerable, sure. that, are, that doesn't have this, this um, natural, everything is, gonna go, <laughs> everything is gonna go my way. Mm -hmm. Well, it depends how lucky or unlucky you are yeah. when, you, when you are, you know, when, I mean, and, and it's luck in both ways because there's also something that I think is freeing about losing the illusion of control. Like, it doesn't feel nice while it's happening. But subsequently, I think there's a degree of relief in, in it's not relinquishing control because you never had it, in, in recognizing that you're not writing the story of your life, that it's going to happen to you as much as by you, if that makes sense. But you write about, on the one hand, the, the sense of possibility, right? Mm -hmm. Possibilities given to us by our parent generation, maybe, and these movements that we are talking about, on mm -hmm. the one hand. But you're also talking about uh, the wish for some rules, for some constraints, maybe, for a job, a good paying job. Uh, you obviously write about writing, you know, yeah. you want to be a journalist in this book. This is also a story about becoming the journalist that you are. Yeah. Um, you write about wanting a relationship, about wanting, in the end, a family. Mm -hmm. And these are two maybe conflicting feelings, I think. One, that we can do everything. I want to do everything. I want to be free. I don't, I don't have... To, I, I can love and love anybody I want. I can do yeah. whatever I want on the one hand, and there is this wish for a more established life. For yeah, and I think those are the fundamental human conflicts. Yeah. I mean, th you know, like what I'm thinking of when you were saying that is like the Odyssey is Homer. I mean, obviously he's stuck in all sorts of things, but <laughs> but it's about to some extent the fundamental conflict between, the fundamental human conflict between the comfort of home huh. and the adventure of the world. You know, the opportunity for glory and accomplishment and excitement that the world provides and the safety and intimacy of home. And let's get off the Odyssey now because I'm thinking of ways that doesn't work, but in some ways <laughs> it works. But I, I'll certainly say that I think that you know, men and women, those are fundamental human conflicts. I think the reason we, we often end up having this discussion around women and why do women think we can have it all is that until very recently, we didn't get to leave the house. You know what I mean? Like, it's like everyone wants these things. Everyone has a conflict between, to some extent, in some way, between the desire for safety, intimacy, security on the one hand and novelty, adventure, excitement on the other, but it's, we talk about it all the time now in terms of women, mm. and I think that's because it was such a recent development that women had even an opportunity to pursue the stuff that had to do with adventure, excitement, accomplishment, ambition. So then we always end up having this discussion about why, you know, can women have it all? Well, no one can have it all. I mean, I, it's, it's not about being female. There are certain things that are obviously different that are biological experiences of childbearing and nursing. And, you know, there's an element of it that's obviously different for women and more constraining and a bigger commitment for a 
period of time. But I think the larger thing of can women have it all, the question is silly to me. No one can have it all. Like women are just human. No human gets everything. Can you talk a little bit about how this cultural sense of possibility that's given to us by politics and culture um, was rooted in you? Because that's sure. an important part of the story. It's, this is part of the person we meet here. Sure. I mean, some of a, a couple things that I want to, I guess, admit or take responsibility for. You know, it wasn't all about the culture. Like, part of my, I think, failing in my first marriage was that, and this isn't an excuse, it just happens to be true. You know, the reason I write about my family and I write about my mother, I was raised by people who had an open marriage and by a mother who thought she could not make who thought she could have both, right? That she could have, on the one hand, the kind of safe family mm. relationship, and on the other hand, this sort of adventurous, exotic relationship that you know was outside of the home. So that's what I saw. And then, to a certain extent, in my first marriage, I tried to recreate that. And it's not something I would do again, because the experience was so unpleasant, not just for my spouse, but for me. I don't ever want to feel torn between... I, I want to be where I am. Um, but I didn't know that till I learned it. I mean, it doesn't make it okay. I feel bad about it. I'm sorry, you know, but I didn't know. So I did that. So that's particular to, I mean, maybe to some extent it's generational because I'm not the only person who had parents who were, you know, <laughs> embassies of the knocking 60s, themselves right? yeah. out. Yeah. Embassies of the sixties. Exactly. Mm. No, it's not unique to me, but that was something about my upbringing. Um, and, in ter and, the, and then let's talk about the good part. The good part was, it wasn't so much that I wanted a job, although one needs a job. I always wanted to be a writer. I always wanted to be a writer. It was the most important thing to me. And my mom, who, you know, has, has had whatever kind of wild idea she had, another wild idea she had was to say to this little kid, her daughter, that is what will happen. You can do that which is a huge gift. And it gave me a lot of um, fortitude and confidence so that when, throughout my life, you know, people said, well, you can't really do that. I'd be like, well, my mom says I can. <laughs> I mean, I'd say it in my head. You know, so, and that gave me a lot of confidence and strength around that. So, and that was, you know, an example of free thinking at its best, hmm. that she wasn't saying, oh, the most important thing is to get married and have kids. And she wasn't saying, pick a normal career. She was, you know what I mean? Pick something safe. She was saying, absolutely, you're going to do what you're passionate about. And that was a great message. But how, how important was it not to be part of the, the conformity? Because it seems deeply, deeply rooted in the young you that we meet here, and um, um, that when you, you when you meet, you know, normalcy, kind mm -hmm. of back off a little, a little bit, and when again it's this conflict, right? Right. You want something and you don't want it. Right. And there are cultural cultural reasons for not wanting it. You have this women's lib. Ideal, ideology, really, in, in your back. Where, yeah. And at the same time, of course, you want to be with someone. 
course. Yeah. And I don't think that's, I don't, it's, it's very rare you'll meet a feminist who says you're not allowed to have love. You know what I mean? Like, I, that's you not found really, some in your journalism, though. I have found some. Yeah. Well, no. Uh-uh. No? Who, where you can't have sex. Okay. But, but I never met a feminist who said you shouldn't have love. Okay. Uh, that's but the night is young. <laughs> yeah. Um, so show of hands. Yeah. I never felt like um, having a partner falling in love was at odds no. with feminism. But I did feel what you're describing. I did feel very conflicted about marriage, monogamy, what felt like constraint and stability and feeling, you know, you know, things that a lot of people feel, especially when they're young. You know, the fear of, you know what it is? Claustrophobia. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have some good news about that. Yeah, me it, too. It, I have some good news about that you too. You do? Yeah. What's yours? Oh, it's, it's not that bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's 100% not that bad. Yeah. And the other thing I was going to say is in my experience, which of course is not everyone's, but in my experience, that thing relaxes with age. That it's like, I'm just, I just don't care. I mean, none of that is a concern of mine anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um, and at some point, you wanted to have a child with your spouse. Which I was always conflicted about. Yeah. It's not that I didn't want one. I was conflicted. And some of the reasons have to do with the things we're talking about, have to mm. do with wanting, you know, really valuing that I had found a way to do sort of what I wanted and to be, you know, like a kind of professional adventurer where I could just go places and, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to stop doing that. But that's, if I'm honest, that's only a little part of it. A big part of it was that I didn't think I'd be a good mother. You know, I really didn't think I'd be good at it. And at the age I'm talking about, mm -hmm. I think I was right. I don't think I would have. Why, you do, know? You say, why do you say that? Because I wasn't mature enough. I hadn't, I hadn't gone, th I hadn't resolved stuff in myself enough that I would have, that I think I would have been trustworthy to take care of a person who was totally emotionally and literally dependent on me. By the time I was ready to do that, I did it. And it's a design flaw in women. It's a very sad, it's, a, it's, it's, you know, it's funny, but it's also, it's just, it's a sad thing. And it's a very lucky thing about being a man is that, when that moment where you're like, I think I can do this now. I think I'm finally a grown up. I think I'm ready to put someone else first is kind of, unless you're like a, uh, what's the opposite of a late bloomer? Precocious. Like if you're precocious about your maturity, then sure, you could do it earlier. But for me, by the time I was there, it was too late for the body. And that is something I do envy about my male friends who are my age, 43. And th some of them, you know, they're still single and they're like, you know, I think I might get married and have kids. And I'm like, it's great. It's nice for you. Um, can, can you talk about... You guys have the weirdest sense of... <laughs> can you talk about how, how you went about it to have a child? I mean, I guess. Yeah. Like, literally? No, not literally. But, yeah. I, I, because th this is the part of the story where, where uh, 
Uh, where it's where you're taking over biology. Yeah. That's a completely legitimate question. I respect it. I mean, I think you can probably guess. Like, I went to the place you go, and the doctor put the sperm. That's okay. what I did. Okay, I didn't mean that specific at all. Well, what did you mean? I don't what understand. kind of relationship was it? Who was? Uh, how, how, well, I was married. I was yeah. married. Oh, is that what you meant? Yeah, and if you can tell us the story about the father and. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Spouse. I got it now. Yeah, thank you. Well, I, was, I thought it was a legitimate interpretation of what he was saying. No. Is it I'm not me? Gonna, I'm not gonna get technical. You, but I, anyway, so uh, yeah, I was married. I'd been married. For, depending on how you defined when we were married, because it wasn't legal. Uh, same-sex marriage in, in the United States wasn't legal till after we broke up. <laughs> like, sort of right after, actually. <laughs> so awful. Anyway, so, we, but we, we considered ourselves married, and we'd been together in a relationship like that for, I think, I don't know, seven, eight years at that point. And... Um, you know, we were ready to do that, and we... Oh, I know the part I think you would think is interesting. I don't really know which, what he's getting at, but I think he means we went to a friend. Yeah. We didn't go to, like, a bank. We went to a friend. I wanted... I At that moment in time, it sounds so... Uh, we'll get to that later, but... You know, I wanted it to be someone I knew. And it was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. No, but you, you describe this is a really, um, it's a good situation. This oh, yeah. A, this is a nice person. The father is a nice person, and he has agreed to uh, help out with the, with the kids' education. And, yes. Um, is this now a safe, I think, now I know what setup. you were getting at. Yeah. He was rich. He was rich, too. Is yeah. that what you mean? Yeah, that, too. But it, was, it seemed safe. It seemed nice. It seemed warm. It seemed like everything was going to go it seemed, it, I, okay, I finally think I'm there. Like, a friend of mine did say to me, like, only you would come up with this situation. Because it was, like, if it had worked, it was pretty lucky. It was, like, from each according to his abilities to each according to her needs. <laughs> like, he couldn't deal with having a kid in the regular way. Like, it just wasn't something that was happening in his life for various sort of emotional reasons. So this was perfect for him. He was like, oh, you girls will do the real day-to-day intimacy, you know, as well as the dirty work. But I don't think that was the part that freaked him out. I think it was the, the enormous intimacy, which to me was the good news. I mean, I was, I was 100% up for the intimacy and by the time I did it, I was 100% up for the dirty work, and I was 100% up for the constraining of my career. At that point, I was like, yeah, enough. Like, not enough with, with being a writer, but enough with prioritizing that. That can be put on hold for a while. So this was kind of the setup that the people in control that we were yes. talking about earlier yes. would Yes, we, we masterminded, yeah. I masterminded, <laughs> we, all three of us did, like what we thought yeah. was sort of a dream scenario. Hmm. And, 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 and significantly, he had money. And that is really significant. We don't have much in the way of social welfare in the United States. I had to save up for my, you know, I had to be able to afford to take off of work for a year. 
And I mean, that was another factor in why I didn't do it younger, is that I, I couldn't afford it. And you know, so getting pregnant cost money, like maternity leave costs money, and then you know, education and childcare would cost money. And so it was a big deal that he had it. Mm -hmm. And then halfway through the pregnancy, you went on your kind of last trip yeah. as a journalist without, yeah. without a kid, and uh, it all went bad. Yes, it did. It certainly did. Um, when I was five months pregnant, I went to Mongolia on assignment, and I went into labor in my hotel room. And for 10 minutes, I was somebody's mother. And the baby died with me there. And that was the end of that. I mean, it was far from the end of that. But it was the only time in my life I'll ever experience childbirth. And as much as devastating as it was, there's nothing I would trade that for. And I don't, really, I don't mean like the birth part, but the experience of holding your child for a minute even and having like a person who's alive who you made there's nothing on god's earth i would trade that for and it's so beautifully and terribly painfully written in the book and you had to write about it or mm. yeah mm. because there's this sentence that comes back everything has to have a reason mm. And it doesn't, right? Right, right. But still, there's this conflict for you want you want a reason, and there are two. I think there's there, there's the cultural idea of being in control of things, and we we go to hospitals and we get fixed up when something's wrong. So if right a, a child dies, some someone there, has, right. there has to be a mistake somewhere. Right. On the other hand, we're humans, and we're probably always. Uh, search for causes, right? And no matter the cultural moment, yeah. But your book goes and into this. And that's very much about that's the cultural part. Yeah. Am I cutting you off mid? No, because I have something to say about that. Mm -hmm. I was not that long ago. I was in Sierra Leone for a story, and this is a country where half the hospitals do not have electricity or running water. I mean, that's the level of healthcare. And while I was there, I was writing about the healthcare system while I, and maternal mortality. While I was there, like th at this clinic, this woman had just had exactly what I had, which is called a placental abruption. Your placenta comes away from your uterus, and once that happens, you're, it's not going to work, unless your baby's so far along that they can you know, incubate him or whatever. But anyway, she had the same thing. And she had the same pain, the same devastation I had. The only difference is that where I come from, everyone says, so what happened? Did they figure out what went wrong? And where she come from, comes from, nobody's asking that. Nobody's asking that. In a country where one in 16 women die, and they die, not the baby. In childbirth, nobody says, what happened? <laughs> and that's the difference. And I mean, it's a perfectly reasonable human question, but the answer is, I had bad luck. But still, you to ask the question. Of course. Well, I'm American. I mean, I'm from that culture. Mm. And also, now having spoken to a lot of women who've had miscarriages, I find 
not just miscarriages, stillbirths, you know, infants, that whole dreadful world of things that happens. Guilt tends to be a common denominator. Like I've, I've yet to meet a woman who had a late stage miscarriage who was like, yeah, I didn't feel guilty. You feel guilty. You feel guilty. So one of the things that I did, and I think most women in that situation do, is think, what did I do wrong? What did I do to deserve this? And of course, if you've done something that sounds bad, like gone to Mongolia, it's pretty easy to focus on that. And God knows everybody else does, even though, frankly, it wouldn't have made any difference. Medically, scientifically, had I stayed put, it wouldn't have mattered. But how much does our way of asking that question contribute or have to do with the sense of guilt, do you think? I think it has to do more with a sense of entitlement. Yeah. I think it has to do with a sense of entitlement, like the same way you know, you hear someone has lung cancer, the first thing you think is, did he smoke? Because we feel like we're entitled to have everything go right unless something's wrong. It's, I don't think there's a lot of, I mean, maybe I, I don't presume to speak for Norway, maybe that's different here. But in the United States, I think there's an assumption that things are gonna go right, and if they don't, why didn't they? We very much have. Are you like that too? Yeah. 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 <laughs> I, I recognize. I think that lung cancer example is great because it's also um, a technique we have for not actually recognizing That's the right. contingency of a situation. That's right. It's not just and it's it's a sense of entitlement, but it's also for distancing. It's a way of yeah. inoculating yeah. yourself. This if you have lung cancer and I ask you if you smoke and you say, yeah, well then I guess I don't have to worry You're as long as I then. don't smoke. Yeah. You know, and I think similarly people wanted to hear that I had done that, you know, well, if they don't fly to Mongolia, they don't have to worry they'll lose their pregnancy. And unfortunately that's not the case, especially as you get older. Mm. Earlier in the book when you write about people uh, around you, you say that, uh, I, I think it's one of your friends, who kind of expected to get preg pregnant because nature owed her this. Well, Is that the same entitlement? Yes and no. Uh. I can't help but feel like if you spend as much time as the average woman does bleeding for days on end, every <laughs> okay. month, mm -hmm. you understand why yeah. you feel that you... Hmm. I've worked for this. So, that's yeah. right. Yeah. I had this discussion with my dad the other day. Somehow I was like, imagine if blood came pouring out of your penis for days on end, every month, for 30 years. He was like, I don't think I'd like that. I was like, no, you wouldn't. You would not like that. So that, that's all you mean by this? Nature owed her this? It's, it's kind of the reward for the unpleasantness? Yeah. Yeah, and just... I mean, I say it there. I say, you know, as a woman who bled for, I can't remember how many years, I can't remember how old she was, she felt that nature owed mm. her this. But I think in other ways, it's not just getting your period. It's, you know... I don't know what else it is. That's a big one. That's a big part. Because what, the rules do not apply, okay? But uh, 
this book is also about the confrontation with the rules of biology. Absolutely. And there is this sense that in the first part, biology is something that, uh, <laughs> easily put, is, is biology is my friend. It, it's something I have here. It plays along with me and does what I want, want it to do. Mm. And when you have your miscarriage, it doesn't. Right. And, and then I didn't know it then, thank God, but it continued not to. Like, if I had known then that that was it and that I wasn't going to get pregnant again, oh, my God. Thank God I didn't know that. You know, that revealed itself over time. And by the time that was clear, I could take... I mean, it's, it's not my favorite thing, but I could take it. I could handle it. Um, I would not have been able to handle it then. The idea that biology is your friend, I think that becomes less and less true for everybody. That's age. That's moving towards death is it's less and less your friend, whether it's your eyes getting worse, your ears, get, whatever it is. If you're lucky enough not to realize that biology isn't just a friend, it's not, it's not anything, it just is. Mm -hmm. If you're lucky enough not to know that until middle age, you had a healthy, you know, you've been lucky. That, that's lucky. But um, just to go back to what we were talking about in the beginning, I have this quote from a review you wrote of a, by a book by Naomi Wolf. And, uh, oh, the vagina book? Yeah, the vagina book. It, I mean, I'm not being fresh. It was called Vagina. <laughs> it's the vagina book. Yeah. Uh, here you write that women's libraries told us that this was a problem, that biology need not be destiny. But it is. Well, it both is and isn't, right? It's both. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? How, how, because in this sense, it is, we're going to die. Yes. So it is our destiny. 100%. But I don't think feminism said... Feminism, first of all, I don't think feminism ever said you can have everything. Feminism said you're fully human, and as a human being, you can have that. You can have the human experience. I think biology need not be destiny was very much a necessary thing to focus on at a moment when, you know, women were not valued members of the workforce. I mean, doing scut work, but in terms of having real responsibility, that was not a, mo when you're trying to convince the world that you can run the country or run the company or whatever it is, that is not a moment to focus on bodies. That is a moment to focus on brains. And so feminism did. But in this way, like I said earlier, like we can't do it for, our fertility ends before men's does. It's a different hit on your career, on your work life. You know, if you're the person who's pregnant, you're the person who has to breastfeed. That's just, I was saying to somebody today, I find it so frustrating. I have a friend who is getting divorced, who's going to have to pay a ton of alimony and child support to her husband because she's the one who makes more money. And it's like, She's the one who had to stop and get pregnant. She's the one who had to stop and breastfeed. Like, it's not quite fair, you know? I mean, even though it's intended to be like, anyway. So it's not all your destiny, but it's, but it's, let's not pretend it doesn't exist. And also I think as a matter of feminism, I think bringing these kinds of things we're talking about that are really big parts of like the human female animal experience. Menstruation, childbirth, nursing, uh, what's the other thing? Menopause, fertility, infertility, all that. That's a 
big part of being of the experience of half the human population. It should be represented in literature and art and all the ways important things get represented. Mm-hmm. And I think that's feminism. Every bit as much as biology isn't destiny, admitting what the experience of being female entails, is, that's feminism too. But does that, that idea of biology not being a destiny, has that somehow morphed or lost nuance on the way and become um, a way of viewing one's own body? For instance, in choosing not to have a child before it's, as you said, too late, even though it's not that simple, but... Right, it's not, it's not that simple. It depends a lot on your own luck, too. But, but anyway. Yeah, these two ideas of biology, the one that we can't escape and the one that it has been a, a project to escape. Uh-huh. No, it's, it's complicated. It's confusing. I agree with you. Like, it's not, I don't, it's not going to work to just follow one to its conclusion and leave it at that. It won't work. It's both, I think. And, and I agree with you. It is, it is confusing. But where does this confusion manifest? itself most clearly right right now on this stage <laughs> no i'm kidding <laughs> i'm just kidding no yeah. no i think because because you're right what you're saying is absolutely right that how is that possible to hold that in your brain that on the one hand biology isn't mm. destiny and on the other hand it is what about the intellectual pro- problem of being able to choose not to have a child by ways of birth control and things and th- then the sense of now i'm gonna choose to to do it, uh-huh. you know, that you have to, those are two different things. It's easier to do, not do it because we have simple measures not to get pregnant. But when you decide to get pregnant, uh-huh. you're, um, you have a whole other set of problems, I guess. Or Well, not everyone. And no. I almost, you know, I came No, but close. contingencies, uncertainties, it's not, uh-huh. it's not that easy to choose. You have a whole new situation. I've, I've had control over this for the last right. 15 years. Now I'm going to do that. It's not that easy. I'm gonna, I can't choose in the same way sure. to do it as I chose not to do it. Yeah. I mean, that's aging. That's aging. You know, you used to be able to choose whether or not you wanted to put on glasses. Like, you only needed to sometimes. And then you reach an age where you're like, I got to do this all the time. It's not a choice. Am I, I'm not yeah, getting it, it, am I? N- n- Do it par- again. Par- partly, but it's, <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't think uh, about the age thing. It's okay. just that um, t- birth control is simple. You use it and you don't get pregnant. But when you want to get pregnant, no matter the age, you're still, it's your body that decides if it's going to let you get pregnant. Yes. If you're 25 or 35 Absolutely. or 40. And this, the feeling of being in control in the first... <laughs> Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. situation, um, it, I, I would think it somehow influences the feeling of entitlement. Now this is going to be easy. Now I'm going to get pregnant. Mm-hmm. I've been choosing not to get pregnant for a long time or for a short time. Now I'm going to choose to be that. And we, then biology kicks in, and it's not that easy. Yeah. yeah. And these kind of intellectual discrepancies, mm-hmm. that something feels easy because we're in control, but then we have biology. 
Mm-hmm. Biology isn't easy. It's uncertain. We can get sick. Yeah. Anything can happen. Right. Always. And I feel that your book kind of it um, lingers on this difference of first being in control and then not being because of biology. Mm-hmm. And not biology and the uh, women's lib sense that we were talking about just now, but in the sense that we're bodies that do things to us. Yeah. That, that the, like, so here's, I think, you know, I very much, one of the things that appealed to me about being a writer is that I had this idea in my head that a writer would be the kind of woman who is free to do whatever she chooses. And I really wanted that. And this experience sort of said to me, the only entity who is free to do whatever she chooses is nature, is Mother Nature. That's, who, that's who's free to do whatever she chooses. Not any woman, not any man. But you're a writer. And a writer is actually free to do. On the page, yeah. On the page. Yeah. And, and I was used to that yeah. authorial control. I do yeah. think that that can contribute to the illusion of control. If you spend all your time, which I always had, thinking about, okay, how do you do the order? Which part comes first? Which part comes last? Should I cut this? Should I change this? You know, being in control of the story, even as a nonfiction writer, even as a journalist, you're still in control of the story on the page. How was it then to write this story about losing control? Writing about your own grief, about those intense moments in that hotel room, when you have your writerly self and your voice, but you have this catastrophic experience to write about, you had to give it, give it a shape yeah. and an order and a structure. And make a meaning. Yeah. And make a meaning, make it mean something, and make it, what did it mean to me? And, and as you, I mean, it's funny, right? It's another one of these, um, like the infinity symbol which is what I think we were talking about a minute ago with biology and is it, de- you know, it, what we were talking about. I think that that was the infinity symbol of it, is that what is, what, what is the meaning I made out of this? The meaning I made was surrender, was uh, a sense of liberation from the illusion of control. How did I make that meaning? By controlling the meaning on the page. Mm-hmm. You know, so it is like a that. Um, but, but in answer to the other part of the question about how was it to write about this, um, I'll be honest, pleasurable. Because I knew the story, like I knew everything about it. Like I am the world expert on me. <laughs> so I knew. So it was kind of, that was something. And that was part of what I thought would be interesting about doing it, and it was, was that as a journalist, what you do is try to piece together the truth from what other people tell you. I mean, sometimes you're there for like some situation, some scene that you describe, but in the larger sense, you're trying to piece together, okay, what's the truth based on like what all these people tell you and what you witness. I thought it would be exciting to write something where I was like, I know the exact truth insofar as, you know, for me, my truth, not anybody else's in the story, it's mine. And that was exciting to really be like, I actually know what the truth is from my perspective. I want to write that. It was satisfying. Mm. But um, what I think you do so well in this book, it, 
is it that uh, living is more difficult than writing. You 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 yeah. touch on that sometimes yeah. here, and there is this um, temptation to make it more linear and uh, make a story that adds up somehow. Yeah, and. All the way through the book and in your other writing, you're interested in the opposite, yeah. where thing, things doesn't add up. Yeah. Um, that seems to be one of the most important aspects of writing this book, too, that this story doesn't add up either. I mean, I think that was the challenge. Was So if you don't want to make a fake, if you don't want to tie things up neatly, how do you, because that's not how life is, how do you give a, how do you give a narrative structure? How do, you, how do you make something feel that it's had an arc and a progression and a, a conclusion without tying it up neatly? And that was the challenge. I mean, that's what I, you know, that's what I attempted. Um, that was my aspiration. Um, and it's something I don't think I answered that you had said a minute ago was like to, to write about grief, to write about pain, you know? The pain, the grief and the pain were painful. Writing about it wasn't. Like, I was feeling what I was feeling anyway. It didn't matter whether I wrote about it or not. No, but you need to find a form for it. Yes, yeah. A form that somehow keeps it open. Yeah. As the, as the moment that it was for you. Well, and so that, because of that commitment, that's one of the reasons I didn't put this bizarre thing, which is that it's so weird, you're not going to believe me, but it's, I, I don't know what to tell you, it's true. When I went into the emergency room in Mongolia, like, it was this weird, I mean, obviously the whole thing was horrible and weird, but another weird thing on top of everything else is that I get to this emergency room in Mongolia, and this, and I was like, what the, like, the handsomest man I'd ever seen came in the door. I was like, what the hell are you doing here? Like, what is this? Anyway, whatever. So we, we interacted a little bit, and it was interesting. It was actually like a really, it was actually really helpful because at that moment in time, I did feel like I might go crazy. Like I did feel like, I wonder if I'm gonna crack. I wonder if I'm gonna lose it. And talking to someone who spoke my language as a first language, who was like, oh, you work for the New Yorker? What do you write about? Oh, you've been, he was, he's South African. He was like, what? And I was like, oh, I've written a story in South Africa. Just having a conversation was a little bit like, okay, this is horrible, but I'm not, I'm not insane. It's just horrible. Anyway, fast forward, we started writing. Eventually, he had to send me my medical report. And, and what started it was that I said, because believe it or not, this is how fucked up the United States is. I couldn't get my doctor to call me back in the United States. So I said to this guy on an email after he sent me this medical report, is it normal? that I'm lactating. Because I didn't know. I'd never done this before. And it was like this weird thing that, I mean, it was such a sad, horrible thing, feeling in so many ways like, I'm a mother, but I have no child. It was already like an identity crisis. So then when milk started coming out of my breast, I was like, good God. <laughs> what next? Anyway, the bottom line is, we started writing to, oh, I know what I was telling you. He said, I said, is this normal? And he said, the milk, re the letdown of milk after a message, uh, excuse me, after a miscarriage is one of nature's least kind tricks, which I just thought was such a beautiful way to put it. Anyway, we started writing each other 
And then my marriage fell apart. And then eventually this doctor and I fell in love and were married. <laughs> it's just the truth. I didn't put any of that in the book. I, I put something about the writing and the, yeah. and the, the writing emails to each other because I, I wanted, f for two reasons. Can I ask? Yeah, anything why, you why want. Di why didn't you? Why, what, that? Why, the, the love part of the story. Because it's hinted at, but why didn't you tell the whole story in the book? Because of exactly what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Because I think it would have been such a cheap ending. Because the reality, the reality of the situation was that that too was complicated. Believe it or not, it's complicated to start a relationship when you're 38 and live in New York with a 55-year-old who splits his time between South Africa and Mongolia. <laughs> that was complicated. So just as if you said, well, and then we fell in love, it makes it sound like, and then and Prince Charming saved me, you know, from my grief and my lesbianism. And that's not what happened. <laughs> that's not what happened at all. So it just, there's no, it just wasn't what this story was about. So the only thing that's in the book about him is some of these emails. And the reason those are in the book is because, first of all, it's writing. You know, it's yet again writing feeling like this kind of salvation. And second of all, it was the introduction of hope, like of that there's other worlds out there. Because what we would write about is he would tell me about growing up in Zimbabwe, this and that. And it was just the, all the things that had always been there for me were still there. I felt like... You know, so it's like I did feel like I'd lost everything. And it's like I lost my kid. I lost my marriage. We had to sell this house. And I just felt like such a failure as a mother, as a wife, all that. The things that were stable were I felt like I'm still a writer and I'm still curious about the world, you know? So that's what those emails allowed into my grief. And that's why I thought they belonged in the book. Hmm. There's this um, really painful strain in the part about the emails too, though, because um, you, you write about, well, your exchange of emails, it keeps this memory alive of, of the child. He's the- uh, The only one who was there. Yeah, yeah. and he's seen, he's seen him, yeah. your son. Yeah. Mm, so, and this also makes it more difficult to read, I think. It's not a love story, it's, just, it's also, part of the grief and yes. part of the thinking about the grief. 100%. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I'd be glad to. I mean, I think, I forgot that part. Because now I'm married to this guy, so it's like, <laughs> it's, you know, we're not, we don't think about that anymore. But initially, you're absolutely right, that it was such a relief to be communicating with someone who was there, because like I was saying a minute ago, I felt so intensely, I, there's no words to communicate how intensely I felt I am a mother in every way. It was like a switch had flipped emotionally and I'd experienced very briefly but very transformatively maternal love. And obviously this other switch had flipped and there was milk everywhere. And it felt like when I would interact with someone who didn't know what had just happened, it felt like the the reality that was obviously real, which was just they're talking to me and whatever, it, all, it felt like a lie. It was like, this is a lie. The truth is that I'm a mother. You know, the truth is I should have this baby. So to be in communication with someone who was there and like literally saw 
it, saw that, saw what he saw when I came in through the door is there is a mother with her child who has died. And it was an enormous relief to communicate with him because it meant I wasn't crazy. Like someone else saw. And, and, and that's one more reason why it's so preposterous that that relationship worked out. Like, it sounds like such a traumatized way to... Like, I don't understand how it worked out, but it did. And still does. Yeah, it's great. It's, it is. <laughs> okay, so that we had to save this ending for the conversation <laughs> and not, uh, not the book. It's yeah. out of the book, yeah. yeah. I, our time is up. Is it? Yeah, I think so. I think so. It was yes, so it fun. You're such a great person to talk on stage with. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Well, you too. Thanks. And you got the microphone you wanted. Thank I, you. I thank really you for did. a really, really terrific book. It's a, it's a beautiful and hugely intelligent book, and thank everyone you. should read it. Thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you so much. And I'll be around if people, I'm going to, yeah. did people do this in Norway? You signed up. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm going to do that. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. You've been listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more episodes and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud and our website. The music is by Apotek. <laughs>